Section 7. Part 2. Light and Shadows. Introduction to Parts 2 and 3. Some chapters in Parts 2 and 3 have a distinctly cutting tone. This is intentional, though no harm is meant by it. There are a lot of shadow sides to Buddhism and mystical traditions in general, some of which will be discussed here. Perhaps a more cutting tone will help to illuminate points that tend to be unmentioned or poorly addressed. Perhaps it will also serve to spark skillful debate and inquiry, rather than causing needless contraction into fear and dogma. However, I should warn you now, some of the next three chapters have quite a bite to them. There is no information in those chapters that is essential to any of the basic practices. If you are not in the mood for some really heavy and scathing social commentary on Western Buddhism, please skip to the chapter called A Clear Goal Now. The practical reason for including Part 2 at all is that what often happens between trying to apply the basics of technical meditation discussed in Part 1 and the successful entry into real meditation territory discussed in Part 3 is that we run into the mainstream culture of Western Buddhism and the communities that develop around it. We need support, friends, who are into what we are into, good teachers and places to practice. We wish to be in the company of fellow adventurers rather than lone wanderers in strange lands. Unfortunately, much of what we find is not particularly conducive to adventure and deep exploration at all. Thus, as one small dissenting voice against the tide, I have included Part 2 to help those who want to go much deeper than most of those around them and avoid the numerous cultural sidetracks and disempowering voices that will keep them from their goals. It is as much a laundry list of my pet peeves as it is anything else, but I am happy to own my neuroses and make them overt. While I may be fooling myself, I think this section, while a bit harsh and probably disrespectful, is likely to be helpful to someone who also wishes to go against the grain and become an actual meditation master. The real dangers that come from using a cutting tone are that it will alienate both readers for whom such a tone is simply not helpful and those who could really benefit from such a tone but do not want to admit this. Worse, it may cause others to agree too strongly, thinking, oh yes, even though that Daniel fellow sometimes writes like a raving lunatic, he and I are really on the same side. We know what's going on. Those over there are the ones who really need to hear this. We all need to hear the points made in this book, myself included, though not necessarily in the style presented here. The ideals and standards presented in this book are very high so that they can be applied universally. Further, the numerous traps and pitfalls presented in this book are also so common that all of us need to be wary, reflecting regularly and honestly on how we have fallen into them once more. There are quite a number of very readable, helpful, and friendly Dharma books out there, such as Jack Cornfield's Encyclopedic Masterwork, A Path with Heart, many of which are loaded with brilliant statements that should basically shock and confound the reader, hitting at the very core of their sense of identity with the deadly accuracy of a master of Zen archery. However, as they have been written in a style that is so completely accessible, these statements have nearly the opposite effect creating a mushy comfort in the reader with statements that should have stopped them in their proverbial tracks and provoked deep inquiry. I have grown tired of people routinely quoting profound Dharma statements from such works as if this represents their understanding when they have no idea what they mean. They seem to derive some false comfort from being able to parrot the masters. While I can understand the appeal of behaving in such ways, as I have done so myself on numerous occasions, I will do my best to keep the second two parts of this book from contributing to this phenomena. Thus I have intentionally written some sections of parts two and three in a style that is designed to sound combative and abrasive. Also, I must admit that it was fun to write that way. It should be noted that if you go through part one, which I tried to make very accessible, without being stunned at the staggering profundity of the statements made on nearly every page, then you either have no need to read this book, or you fell into the trap I just mentioned above. I think that most spiritual practitioners 
could and should become very much more comfortable admitting what they don't know and seeking clarification. The times when I myself have failed to do so have been much to my detriment. In these next two parts I will often mention very specific high states and attainments for the purpose of attempting in some small way to refocus Buddhism on those things that go far beyond philosophy, psychology, and dogmatic religion. It is full enlightenment that finally makes the difference and was, according to the Buddha himself, the whole reason for all of this. Unfortunately, even fairly rational adults can suddenly lose the ability to stay in touch with ordinary reality when such language is used, and I will do my best to try to counteract this and bring things back down to earth whenever possible. It has become almost taboo to mention actual attainment or mastery of this stuff among many meditation communities, and this is grossly unfortunate, which is to say, it is completely ridiculous and frighteningly ironic. Some reasons for this will be touched on occasionally, as well as some of what might be able to be done about this. However, if we are to have a clear standard for whether or not these techniques and teachings are working for us, it is vital that we have a thorough knowledge of what is possible and even expected of those who really practice well. That is the primary reason for Part 3. Remember, you are reading a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. It has been written on the assumption that its readers actually want to do this. That said, there will probably be readers who will think that most of what is written in Part 3, which details the stages of enlightenment, the high concentration attainments, and even more unusual territory, is pure fantasy, myth, dogma, and nonsense. I have little to say to these readers except that this book is obviously not written for them. I hope that you will realize the difficulties inherent in language, concepts, doctrines, and maps of spiritual terrain. They are particularly clumsy tools even when used to their fullest potential, and this is unlikely to have happened here. Despite the fact that I will often use a tone implying certainty, it should be said that nothing whatsoever I have written here is absolutely true. Language at its best is a useful tool, though by its very nature it artificially divides, reduces, and oversimplifies. Hopefully one will concern oneself with what is pragmatic rather than what is absolutely correct from some arbitrary point of view. The crucial thing is practice and direct experience for one's self. Once you understand yourself, you will be able to laugh knowingly at my efforts. Buddhism versus the Buddha One of my teachers once commented, Buddhism and the teachings of the Buddha have been at odds for 2,500 years. These are cynical but appropriate words. What the Buddha taught was really extremely simple, and as a practice, particularly unglamorous and generally quite difficult, though manageable. If one has a chance to read the original texts, one sees again and again that what the Buddha taught was generally practical and as non-dogmatic as could be expected. He basically said, do these very specific things and these specific results will happen. He had little use for ritual, ceremony, or philosophy that was not for some practical purpose. Now it is true that things did get a bit complex and religious in the later years of his teaching as the Vijnana, or code of conduct for monks, was established. The Buddha said that the added rules and regulations were a response to the increased quantity of low-quality students with whom he had to work in the later years of his life, and the problems inherent in running a large organization. After the Buddha died, however, the process of turning the teachings of the Buddha from a practical path for awakening into a number of realistic religions reached new extremes of dogma and division. It is also true, however, that many worthwhile and practical variations on the fundamental teachings and techniques have been added that have provided great benefit to many of those who actually followed them, rather than just talking about them. In general, as mystical teachings become religions, all sorts of things get added on to them, depending on the prevailing cultural norms, the current government's attitude towards the teachings, how well or poorly the teachings are understood by those teaching them, and economic pressures. Christianity as a dogma 
rather than as a mystical tradition or a set of spiritual practices such as sitting in the desert for forty days facing one's demons and finding god is just one scary example of this but perhaps no scarier than the religions of buddhism just as christianity often seems to have little to do with what jesus was talking about and practically nothing to do with doing the practices he did or living the kind of life he did just so buddhism often seems to have largely forgotten about the core teachings of the buddha as buddhism enters america a whole new layer of cultural dust is being added to it most of which is regulated to the shadow sides of western psychology and those of the new age movement however there are also signs that fresh new life and health is being breathed into aspects of buddhism that had become somewhat moldy and calcified in their countries of origin the extra trappings are not necessarily all harmful in and of themselves but they may dilute the amount of practical information about how to awaken with all sorts of other information that may have little to do with awakening and may even be an impediment to it this may then lead to less than complete emphasis on the three fundamental trainings in morality concentration and wisdom which are quite a handful and a great undertaking even in their most simple forms i was extremely lucky in that i learned some great buddhist meditation technology long before i really got to know the culture of mainstream western buddhism i have much use for the former and as for the latter well read on it is true that buddhist training can take on many valid forms and this is a fine and beautiful thing as different training methods may be appropriate for different meditators at different times the added padding of tradition and religion can be a comfort and a support as most people seem to really like having some kind of dogmatic mythical or cultural foundation from which to work traditions and standardized conceptual frameworks can also provide the means by which people can talk to each other about experiences and techniques that might otherwise be very hard to explain clearly i have a friend from another mystical tradition who knows much that i find useful and interesting but it took us months to even begin to line up our terminology so that we could benefit from each other's understanding however these conceptual frameworks and trappings may also produce the huge amount of useless harmful and divisive secretarianism that exists within buddhism and between the various meditative or mystical traditions as well as all sorts of effort going into things that produce no freedom and may cause other forms of suffering every time i leave my sheltered little academic life and enter the rough and tumble world of endlessly petty secretarian dharma scenes i am again astounded at how fixated people can be on the minute differences between their tradition and traditions that are so similar to theirs they can only be differentiated by the clothes people wear and the names they call things i can't tell you how tiring it is sometimes i wonder how these otherwise kind and reasonable people can stand themselves or each other when they are like that we all want to be special but i beg you find a way to be special that allows others to be special also it is what is common to the great mystical paths that make them special the differences are one hundred percent guaranteed to be fundamentally irrelevant now that said i am going to turn around and bust on cultural aspects of traditions that are not into awakening and mastering what the buddha was talking about this is buddhism after all and so it seems only natural that i should be into what the old boy was into i have heard way too many conversations between members of differing mystical traditions that could be summarized my dogma and ideals are better than your dogma and ideals even worse are the rare and astonishing conversations that might be summarized my dogma and ideals are better than your actual realizations and profound insights frightening there is a movement in the west reminiscent of the original objectives of the buddha in the early days of his teaching to divorce buddhism's core meditation technology and basic trainings from religion and ritual entirely I'm a great fan of this movement, so long as it does not cause people to throw out too many of the original Buddhist conceptual frameworks that are helpful as tools for mastering these practices. 
There is also a movement in the West to take the meditative technology of Buddhism and integrate it into everything from Catholicism to psychiatry to the freakish fringe of the New Age. I don't have a problem with this trend particularly, just as long as people realize that you could just as easily divorce these technologies from those traditions and have something that is still very useful and powerful. There is another related movement in the West, and that is to make Buddhism into something for everyone. Unfortunately, what is happening is that Buddhism is becoming watered down in order to make it have broad appeal. The result is something very similar to what happens in places like Thailand, where most people practice Buddhism in a way that is largely devotional and dogmatic. In the West, this translates to people practicing Buddhism by becoming neurotic about being Buddhist, accumulating lots of pretty books and expensive props, learning just enough of some new language to be pretentious, and by sitting on a cushion engaged in free-form psychological whatnot while doing nothing resembling meditative practices. They may aspire to no level of mastery of anything and may never have been told what these practices were actually designed to achieve. Thus, their meditation is largely devotional meditation, something that externally looks like meditation but achieves little. In short, it is just one more spiritual trapping, though one that may have some social benefits. Many seem to have substituted the pain of the pew for the pain of the zafu, with the results and motivations being largely the same. It is an imitation of meditation done because meditation seems like a good and noble thing to do. However, it is a meditation that has been designed by those teachers who want everyone to be able to feel good that they are doing something spiritual. While it is good for a person to slow down and take time out for silence, I will claim that beyond these and a few cardiovascular benefits, there is often not a whole lot of any great worth that comes from this sort of practice. True, they are not out smoking crack. But why get so close to the real thing and then not do those practices that make a real difference? Many will consider my devaluation of low-grade sitting practice radical and counterproductive. Perhaps it is. But I claim that many who would have aspired to much more are being shortchanged by not being invited to really step up to the plate and play ball, to discover the profound capabilities hidden within their own minds. This book is designed to be just an invitation, an invitation to step far beyond the increasingly ritualized, bastardized, and gutless mock-up of Buddhism that is rearing its fluffy head in the modern West, and has a stranglehold on many a practice group, and even some of the big meditation centers. To be fair, it is true that spiritual trappings and cultural add-ons may, at their best, be skillful means, ways of making difficult teachings more accessible and ways of getting more people to practice correctly, and in a way that will finally bring realization. A fancy hat or a good ritual can really inspire some people. That said, it is lucky that one of the fundamental defilements that drops away at first awakening is attachment to rites and rituals, such as Buddhism, ceremony, specific techniques, and religious and cultural trappings in general. Unfortunately, the cultural inertia of the religions of Buddhism is hard to entirely circumvent. It need not be, if the trappings can serve as skillful means. But I assert that many more people could be much more careful about what are fundamentally helpful teachings and what causes division, confusion, and sectarian arrogance. Those who aren't careful about this are at least demonstrating in a roundabout way that they don't know what the fundamental teachings are for themselves and have attained little wisdom. Content and Ultimate Reality There is too much content-centered Buddhism and content-centered spirituality in general. It is not that content isn't important, but it is only half the picture and the half we are already quite familiar with and typically stuck in. By content, I mean everything except determined effort to realize the full truth of the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and no-self. For example, to realize ultimate reality. Perhaps two illustrations will help. The first odd phenomenon I have noticed is that when students of meditation gather together to discuss Buddhism, they almost never talk about actual meditation practices in depth and detail. 
they almost never talk about their diligent attempts to really understand these teachings in each moment. It is almost an unacknowledged taboo that nearly any political correct topic under the sun is acceptable, as long as it doesn't have to do with trying to master meditation techniques. While there are sporadic moments of Dharma combat or heated discussion for the purpose of learning and sharing the Dharma, even these tend to be mostly on the philosophy of all of this. The second odd phenomenon I have noticed has occurred in situations when one might suspect that there would not be this problem. I have been to a fair number of retreats in the West, and these tend to have small group meetings. The Dharma teachers have invariably been giving instructions that emphasize following the motion of the breath or the sensations of the feet, developing concentration on these subjects, not being lost in thought, and giving precise attention to bare reality just as it is. They tend to use the phrase, moment to moment, often, which in my book means fast. This is all as it should be. They tend to mention things like impermanence, suffering, and no self, and tend to advocate trying to understand these qualities of all experience directly without the elaboration of thought. They mention time and time again that one should not be lost in the stories and tape loops of the mind. They may have traveled thousands of miles at great expense to help people understand these teachings that they themselves have spent many years learning. For the hundreds of dollars in retreat fees, donations, and spent vacation time, the students will perhaps get three meetings with the teacher during a ten-day retreat and perhaps get fifteen to twenty precious minutes of time to talk to a real meditation master assuming they are lucky enough to actually be sitting with one. However, when some eight to ten students finally get a chance to meet with the teacher in a small group meeting, a brief chance to really learn what this teacher has to teach, what happens? Do they talk about their wholehearted attempts at following the careful and skillful instructions of the teacher? Strangely, this only seems to happen on rare occasions. I was at one of these small group meetings where everyone was talking about their neurotic stuff. In a moment of feeling, like I might be able to actually add something useful, I said in a loud and exasperated voice, The breath! Is anyone trying to notice the breath? They just looked at me like I was out of my mind and went back to whining about their psychological crap. Here was a room full of otherwise accomplished adults who somehow had been transformed into needy and pathetic children without any obvious ability to deal with their lives or follow very basic instructions. Beware of meditation cultures that consistently encourage this in people. It is a mark of something gone horribly wrong. Stranger even than this, when students actually do talk about trying to follow these careful instructions of their meditation teachers, it can occasionally seem to be such a shock to the teachers, such a violation of the unwritten taboos, and perhaps even such a threat to the hierarchy that they sometimes hardly seem to know how to handle it. In my more cynical moments, I have sometimes suspected that the quickest way to get worried looks from many modern Western meditation teachers is to talk about practice in a way that implies the attempt to actually master anything. Most of the students tend to whine about the relationships, their childhood, their neurotic thoughts, their screwed-up lives, in short, content. I must say that I have great sympathy for these people. I really do. God knows we all have this sort of stuff to whine about. And in the right context, whining about our stuff might be a very good idea. But two things are fairly clear. These people have spent too little time in therapy, or perhaps too much time in bad therapy, and somehow have not heard one word of what the teacher had been talking about as regards insight practice. Now it is absolutely true that we all have our issues, pains, traumas, scars and quirks. We have to learn to deal with these somehow if we want to be happy and live the good life we all want to live. We have to find ways to deal with the content, to heal, to grow, to mature and all of that. But we must also learn when to shift to seeing things on a completely different level. There is a time and a place for everything. Imagine if you were an algebra teacher and you told your students to solve the homework in the back of chapter one. Instead, your students turn in long, rambling essays about the traumas of their childhood. How would you feel? Unfortunately, you would feel like many meditation teachers. 
Now it is true that many Dharma teachers have a great time helping people deal with their stuff, and some of these are even quite good at it. There are others that put up with having to play this role, but they would prefer to be teaching inside practices. Some teachers just can't stand it when they spend lots of time giving careful instructions only to have very few people follow them, particularly when they know what an amazing opportunity for even deep healing. Increased well-being and clarity is being squandered by their students when they fail to really practice. Sometimes people have actually learned just a bit of the teachings on impermanence, suffering, and emptiness, but then proceed to talk about this in highly content-centered terms. They may say things like, Oh yes, I am impermanent and will die one day. This is awful and this thought causes me suffering. Truly, I feel empty inside. This is macroscopic, about grand yet crude concepts and ideas, and so is still squarely in the territory of philosophy and existentialism. This meditator not only needs to learn what insight practice actually is, but might also benefit from a bit more sunshine and exercise, or perhaps even some of those new antidepressants. A very small amount of such reflection can be of some limited benefit if the energy of the frustration is directed into practice. There are other types of reflection that might be much more skillful, but those are largely a topic for another day. See Jack Cornfield's A Path with Heart or Christopher Tidmus' Light on Enlightenment. If meditators could actually just go microscopic and try to see the three characteristics of each and every little sensation that makes up their experience, then they might begin to actually understand reality at the level that makes the difference. Effectively encouraging students to shift their attention from fixation on content and the macroscopic to also including the microscopic and universal is probably the hardest job of the meditation teacher. I sometimes wonder how many of them have largely given up trying to do this. When meditators on retreat focus on content instead of grounding the mind in the objects of meditation, which just might produce the deep insights that will make the big difference that they are looking for, they basically let their minds go, and go they do. After a day or two of silence and a nearly complete lack of distractions, the spinning of their minds on neurotic content may have accelerated like the turbine of a jet engine on full throttle. If they were a mess before, now this has been multiplied by a factor of ten to a hundred. They then hit the small group meeting like a runaway freight train of exasperated mind noise, and all present get to be bathed in the profound lack of clarity that they have spent so much hard cushion time cultivating. Years go by and their practice deepens, not into inside territory, but into epoxy-like faith and further fixation on content. They learn how to talk Buddhist. They learn the culture of Buddhism in just the same way that they learn the culture of transpersonal therapy, transactional analysis, or French existentialism. They become fascinated with their growing knowledge of Pali, their fancy brass bell from Nepal, or their knowledge of tantric iconography. They have taken bodhisattva vows 108 times. They may become neurotic about right speech and self-righteous about noble silence. They may begin to adopt the gently condescending and overly deliberate speech patterns and mannerisms that quietly scream, I am so spiritual and aware. They may become fixated on complex, arbitrary, restrictive, and even disempowering models of what is proper Buddhist behavior trying to be a good Buddhist, whatever that is. In short, they become very religious. At worst, they become gaudy and distorted caricatures of the spiritual life. Such people are generally very tiring to be around. They may even get sucked into the all-too-common trap of praying for a better rebirth and making merit, rather than actually trying to master the art of meditation and wise living here and now. In short, the trappings, dogma, and scene become everything, and penetrating the illusions that bind them on the wheel of suffering is lost in the shuffle. At its worst, they can go on like this for enough time so that they develop quite a retreat resume, but little or no insight, and then get caught by this. They have been to India, sat with this teacher and that teacher, had tantric initiations, or been sitting for twenty years. 
They begin to become fascinated by all of this, and somehow they begin to feel wise, despite the fact that they may have no insight whatsoever into the universal truth of things, because they never actually learned insight practice. They use the word emptiness in casual conversation when they don't have clue one what it means, but they feel they do, as they have spent so much time hearing it, meditating on it, and being spiritual. They talk about letting go and mindfulness as if they are the experts. They may even begin to teach, and to do so they find themselves having to subtly and overtly rationalize that they completely understand what they are teaching. After all, they want to encourage faith in their beautiful tradition, and so try to appear clear and unconfused. They get stuck here, stuck in the muck of their rationalizations, the misapplied lingo, the sugar-coated dogma, the role of the teacher, and the cultural trappings that they have become experts in. From this point it can become nearly impossible for them to actually learn anything, as they are now trapped in the very teachings that were originally designed to free them from just such a situation. What went wrong? How did this happen? How did they substitute knowledge of culture, content, and dogma for fundamental insight? A large number of such people are quite intelligent. Many have successful careers or graduate degrees. Most of the big-name teachers they sat with probably had some insight and may have been highly enlightened. So what happened? I can only speculate, but perhaps something good will come of such speculation. It could be that they just are into spiritual scenes, trappings, and the like. That is what they went looking for, and they found it in dizzying abundance. It could be that they had no idea what they were getting into or what they wanted, and so they ended up becoming fascinated with these things simply out of cultural inertia, as many around them will likely have done so. An old friend and former meditation teacher of mine and I were ranting in our typically passionate style about this very topic one day, and we came up with the mushroom theory. Mushrooms are fed manure and kept in the dark, and we speculated that part of the problem was that some meditation teachers were using the mushroom method of teaching, thus raising a crop of mushroom meditators, all soft and pale. This is actually a bit of an extreme way to describe the situation, and is not meant to imply that the teachers were being malicious. However, there is this cultural factor in Western Buddhism that real insight, insight into the fundamental nature of reality, or the three characteristics, is almost never talked about directly, unlike in Burma or some other settings. My friend and I called this cultural factor the mushroom factor. Thus, most teachers won't say something as blatant as, Well, when I was meditating, I spent some period of time lost in the stories and tape loops of my mind. This was terrible, and I got nowhere but nutty. However, one day, a senior teacher straightened me out and somehow convinced me to ground my mind in the specific sensations that make up the objects of meditation and examine impermanence. After some days of consistent and diligent practice using good technique, I began to directly penetrate the three illusions of permanence, satisfactoriness, and self, and my world began to be broken down into the mind moments and vibrations that I always thought were just talk. By paying careful attention to bare phenomena arising and passing quick moment after quick moment, I finally progressively moved through the stages of insight and got my first taste of enlightenment. Thus, if you spin in content and don't penetrate the three illusions, you are wasting your time and mine. This is just the way it is. If you develop strong concentration on the primary object and investigate the three characteristics consistently, this will almost certainly produce insight. This is just the way it is. Any questions? Most meditation teachers won't say this, and there are some reasons why. First, they may not wish to alienate their student base. One reason for this may come from the teacher hoping that if students are led into this gently and with great tolerance for their gross misinterpretations of the practice and teachings, then they may be able to persevere. Another possible reason may have to do with the fact that making a living as a Dharma teacher can be tough, and more students means more donations. In short, the reality of what practice really is and entails doesn't tend to sell well, despite the potential for extraordinary benefits, as students tend to like their delusions and fascinations more than they realize. 
Teachers may also want to hold back the details of what real insight is like so that they can more accurately evaluate students' practice without having to worry about students rationalizing that they are experiencing whatever it is the teacher is talking about. Disclosure of the details of what insight is actually like can result in students giving spurious reports in interviews, either out of their own confusion or a genuine desire to fool the teacher and make themselves look good. These situations definitely happen, but probably not nearly as often as people completely missing the boat on what is insight practice and what is just wallowing in the muck of their mind, and perhaps becoming even more neurotic about it. Thus my friend and I decided that we would talk about insight, our practice, and this sort of thing when we taught. It turns out that doing this is harder than it would seem. Some hints about why we generally fail to completely live up to our own ideals will be given later in the chapter called More on the Mushroom Factor. However, we both have done our best to fight the trend and talk about the stages of insight and what is possible on the spiritual path. Another possible reason why people don't learn to actually practice correctly is that many people are not on retreat or in the meditation class to learn what the teachers have to teach. This may be for a variety of reasons. Perhaps they are just there to find something else, such as time away from some situation, but are not there to find what the teachers are teaching. Some students may have so much invested in their level of education and high position that they just can't hear what the teachers are talking about, or they hear it and think, Oh yes, I myself have read many books and fully understand that trivial point about impermanence. But when do we get enlightenment? Yikes! Some students may be there to further their psychotherapy, which can be a fine and worthy goal. However, they may assume that the meditation teacher is probably the best psychotherapist they could have. They think, after all, they are enlightened, aren't they? They must be completely sane and balanced. They must know how to have the perfect relationship, how to find the perfect job, how to invest in the stock market, how to talk to their mother, how to end world hunger, how to rebuild a carburetor, and all other such details of wise living on this earth. After all, isn't enlightenment about understanding everything? Gadzooks! A quick digression here. Enlightenment is about understanding the fundamental nature of all things, and what they happen to be is ultimately completely and utterly irrelevant to enlightenment. Thus, very enlightened beings understand something fundamental about whatever arises or however their lives manifest. For example, its impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness, as well as all of the stuff about the true self, which is the same thing and will be discussed later. However, they have no more knowledge about the specifics of the world, such as content or subject matter, than they have acquired in just the way that anyone else acquires knowledge about the specifics of this world. They can even have all sorts of psychological baggage to deal with, and this is probably the norm. Enlightened beings will know a lot about the territory of insight, having had to navigate it to get enlightened, but this is a strangely specialized skill and a fairly esoteric body of knowledge that is only really useful in helping others navigate it. True. Being enlightened does provide by degrees deeper levels of extreme clarity into the workings of the mind, and this can be helpful. By understanding their own mind, they will have some level of insight into the basics of the minds of others. However, unless the meditation teacher is a trained psychotherapist, they are not a psychotherapist and probably shouldn't pretend to be one, though this unfortunately happens far too often, in my humble opinion. Just so, a trained psychotherapist is not enlightened, unless they get enlightened, and shouldn't pretend to understand insight practice if they don't. This also happens far too often, if you ask me, and the dark irony is that they tend to charge much more than real, qualified Dharma teachers. Note, the Buddha was quite adamant about no one charging for the teachings which are considered priceless. This system of non-obligatory donation and mutual support has worked quite well for 2,500 years, and it would be a tragic mistake to assume that it cannot function in the West. Using retreats or meditation purely as a form of continuing psychotherapy may have other problems associated with it. 
One may not be in the guidance of a trained therapist and may not be used to the mind-noise amplification factor that silence and a lack of distractions tend to create in the absence of grounding the mind in a meditation object. Further, one may not gain the benefits of the only thing that does make a permanent difference in ending fundamental suffering and bringing the quiet joy of understanding, mastering insight practice and getting enlightened. Another quick digression here. There is this odd idea that somehow lack of effort is a good thing, or that it is bad to want to get enlightened. This is completely absurd and has paralyzed the practice of far too many. I believe this has come from an extremely confused misunderstanding of Zen or the Bodhisattva vow. No one ever got enlightened without effort. This never happened and never will. Anyone who has really gotten into Zen or Mahayana teachings will know firsthand that they both require a tremendous amount of effort, just like every other spiritual path. As one of my teachers put it, in the end, you must give up even the desire for enlightenment, but not too soon. Sutta 131 In the middle length discourses of the Buddha is called One Fortunate Attachment and in it the Buddha clearly states that making effort to realize the truth of your experience is an extremely good idea. He also goes on and on about the three characteristics. Funny that. Another reason that students often fail to make progress is that they confuse content and insight. I suspect they are confused because they have spent their whole lives thinking about content, learning about content, and dealing with content in a context where content matters. For example, when one is not doing insight practice. You can't take a spelling test in first grade and say that all that is important is that words come and go, don't satisfy, and aren't you. This just won't fly, and it wouldn't be appropriate. Just so, when practicing morality, the first and most fundamental training in spirituality, content is everything, or at least as far as training in morality can take you, you can't be a mass murderer and rationalize this by thinking, well, they were all impermanent, unsatisfactory, and empty, so why not kill them? This just won't fly either, and so content and spirituality get quite connected. This is good to a point. See the chapter called Right Thought and the Aegean Stables. Fixation on content even works well when practicing the second training, training in concentration. When meditation students are learning to concentrate, they are told to concentrate on specific things, like breath, a green tara, a tantric deity, or some other such thing. This is content. There is no such thing as the breath or a green tara from the point of view of insight practices, as these are just fresh streams of impermanent and absolutely transitory sensations that are crudely labeled breath or green tara. But for the purpose of developing the second training, concentration, this is ignored and these impermanent sensations are crudely labeled breath or green terra. Thus, even for pure concentration practice, what you are concentrating on, such as content, matters. Thus the idea that content is everything is reinforced. However, when it comes to insight practice, content will get you nowhere fast. In insight practice, everything the student has learned about being lost in the names of things and thoughts about them, such as content, will be completely useless and an impediment. Here the inquiry must turn to impermanence, suffering, and no self. These characteristics must be understood clearly and directly in whatever sensations arise, be they beautiful, ugly, helpful, not helpful, skillful, not skillful, holy, profane, dull, or otherwise. Anything other than this is just not insight practice, never was and never will be. It doesn't matter what the quality of your mind is or what the sensations of your body are, if you directly understand the momentary sensations that make up these to be impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, then you are on the right path, the path of liberating insight. However, as mentioned before, off the cushion, the quality of your mind, your reactions, your words and deeds all matter. These are not in conflict. Insight practice is about ultimate reality, the ultimate nature of reality, and thus the specifics don't matter. 
Morality and concentration are about relative reality, and thus the specifics are everything. Learning to be a master of both the ultimate and the relative is what it's all about. Another reason that people don't make progress is that they may be being taught by people who have no or little insight, and so are taught by those who are themselves fascinated by content and unskilled in going beyond this into insight practices. The scary truth is that there are far more people teaching insight meditation that don't know what insight is than those that do, though this tends to be less true in big established retreat centers. Thus, even if the students learn what they are taught, if those who do not know are teaching them, then what they learn is unlikely to be correct or helpful. While the teacher may have learned to parrot the language of ultimate reality, this is absolutely no substitute for direct knowledge of it. In the tradition I come from, they consider the second stage of enlightenment, the second path, see part three, to generally be the minimum level of understanding for a teacher. This is a very reasonable standard. Another possible reason that people get lost and don't follow the clear and basic instructions of insight practices is that they just can't believe that doing something as completely simple as looking into the impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and emptiness of the mundane sensations that make up their ordinary world could produce awakening. It just sounds ridiculous to them, and thus they imagine that they are secret teachings somewhere that are the real way to enlightenment. Thus they may not try at all, may practice in their own way, or may keep trying to read more into the teachings than is there and come up with their own special nonsense. These unhelpful ways of speculating can become very engaging, but they won't produce insight. These speculations can also lead to people trying to do very advanced practices that were originally designed for meditators that had already mastered concentration and insight practices to a pronounced degree, such as intensive tantric retreats, and thus not deriving the full benefit from them or running into other problems. How do I know that solely content-based practice won't produce insight? Because there are only three doors to ultimate reality, that's why, and they are utterly unrelated to content, although they can be found in all content if the content aspect is ignored. Actually, there is a sort of fourth door that is accessible to very specialized beings, see the appendix. Only three doors? But there are thousands of practices, many traditions. How can you say there are only three doors? There are only three doors, that's how. I don't care what tradition you subscribe to, what practice you do, or who you are. There are only three basic ways to enter into the attainment of ultimate reality, emptiness, nirvana, or whatever you want to call it. These doors relate directly to profound and direct understandings of the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and no self, and you have to understand the heck out of these to enter into the ranks of the noble ones. But there are many valid traditions that do not talk about the three characteristics. It may appear so, but if the tradition is a valid tradition, you will find these teachings in there somehow, in some other language or formulation, as these are the only way. You will find them in the works of Rumi, Kabir, and Krishnamurti. You will find them in the Bible and Koran. You will find them in the writings of St. John of the Cross and many other Christian mystics. You will find them in all the branches of Buddhism. You will find them in the Upanishads. You will find them in the writings of Carlos Castaneda. You will find them wherever you find a true spiritual path and that is just all there is to it. It can help to consider that to completely understand compassion is to understand suffering and vice versa, as these are really two sides of the same coin. Also, to understand true self-practices is the same as understanding no self-practices, as these are also two sides of the same coin. But we are tantric practitioners, and the three characteristics are merely a lowbrow Indiana teaching. Tantra primarily cultivates the emptiness door, that of no self, which is one of the three characteristics. It can also be useful for transmuting energy into more skillful forms, a bit of which will be discussed later. However, those who consider themselves to be Mahayanists or Vajrayanists should read the fine print. 
you will find that all three characteristics are there, and in fact that you are highly encouraged to master the Hinayana practices before moving on to the Mahayana or Vajrayana practices anyway. I strongly suggest checking out Lama Yeshe's Introduction to Tantra. Further, the Hinayana is often confused with the Theravada, and while there are similarities, the Theravada is much more extensive than the Tibetan division of the Hayana and contains extensive teachings on compassion and emptiness, as well as helping others, but this topic is for another time. In short, should you enter ultimate reality or emptiness, it will be through one of the three doors. This is just the way it is. It is not negotiable. The nature of the mind and reality are just the nature of the mind and reality. You cannot change this, but you can understand it. But we are Zen students. We realize Buddha nature. We don't need the three characteristics as we sit Zazen. Read any good book on Zen, such as those by Dogen, Chi Newell, or the excellent Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, by Shun Ryu Suzuki. The three characteristics are in there in abundance, and those who think they can enter ultimate reality in some other way are fooling themselves. Paying direct attention to bare reality with clarity and precision will result in directly observing the three characteristics, regardless of whether or not you wish to call them that as they are absolutely the truth of all conditioned things in all times and in all beings. Thus, the practice, tradition, and all of that, such as content, are irrelevant in the end. However, you need them right up until the last moment, so don't think that I am advocating not following a tradition. I am just advocating actually following the tradition correctly, and thus clearly penetrating into the nature of your actual experience just as it is. Nothing helps in the end but understanding the fundamental nature of reality, such as the three characteristics. It may often be true that people simply are not in a position where insight practices are appropriate for them. Insight practices are not for everyone. One of the clear marks of whether or not they are appropriate for someone is their ability to even do them in the first place. If despite clear instructions and appropriate support, a would-be insight meditator is simply unable to do anything but spin in content and fixation. They should try something else, until such time as they can hear, understand, and then follow the extremely basic but specific instructions of insight practices. The last and perhaps most pernicious of the reasons that students don't really apply themselves is that they don't actually believe it can be done, that they could actually get enlightened or that anyone else except a rare few get enlightened. Further, if they do know of a potentially enlightened person, such as a lineage teacher, that person typically becomes thought of as being other, an aberration, one of those over there, one of the chosen ones, and somehow surreal, like an imagined demigod. This has been a terrible problem since the very beginning of all mystical traditions, and is unfortunately unlikely to go away any time soon. Part of this is due to the mushroom factor, but there are many other complex reasons for it. Suffice to say, it can be done and is done today by students using these simple practices. Find someone enlightened who is willing to talk more about this if you want specific examples, and see the chapter called More on the Mushroom Factor.